several weeks, we've been on a series called The Beginning of Wisdom. And for those of you that may be just joining us today and for those of you that are joining us online today, if you haven't been able to participate in the last few weeks, I would encourage you to go to the website so that you can catch the foundational messages uh, that have brought us to where we are today. Uh, today I'm going to be speaking about the seven marks of God's wisdom, and we launched out of a passage of Scripture that is found in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn to this, because this is kind of the springboard that we have been using as we've been jumping into what does it look like for us to live a life of wisdom in a world that has lost its mind. And the Scripture says in Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the reverence of the Lord, the recognition of the Lord. Having a fear of who He is in comparison to us is the beginning, the introduction of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Lord, as we approach Your Word today, You have promised us that the Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us into everything that is truthful. Our desire, Lord, is not merely to be people that hear your word, but would be a people that puts it into practice. And as we grow in you, Lord, that we would reflect your nature more and more. So we ask that this time that we have in your word today would be extremely valuable to us. This, you plant within us the things that we need and that it grows and matures into our behavior and actions and attitudes, O oh Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. How many of you know that what you feed into your mind is going to show up in your decisions and your attitude? Every mother that has children know that whatever they're feeding in their mind is going to show up, and we do not grow out of that. Whatever we put into our mind is going to show up in our decisions and attitudes. A few weeks ago, I was in for my annual physical, and I had to go in a week before and, and have my blood drawn, so I know that that's going to happen. So like two weeks before I have my blood drawn, my blood drawn, I start to eat healthy. Um, figured that's plenty of time for vegetables, which I normally do not eat, to show up in my bloodstream. And uh, my doctor comes walking in, and, and he and I have a really funny relationship, and we joke with each other, and he looked at me, he goes, you like cheese, don't you? And I said, I do. I said, I love extra cheese on my pizza. I love extra cheese on my chicken parmesan. I love extra cheese on my enchiladas. How did you know? He goes, because your blood doesn't lie. <laughs> he said, so I need to talk to you about your love of cheese. And I said, we're going to end this conversation right here. I said, did you notice I'd eaten vegetables? He goes, you hadn't eaten enough for it to show up in your blood. So... <laughs> I couldn't get that line out of my head, your blood doesn't lie. And I begin to think, you know what, whether you know it or not, your choices and your attitudes don't lie. Whatever you are feeding into your heart and into your mind and into your spirit will show up in your attitude and then ultimately in the choices that you make. Our thought life forms the basis and is largely revealed in the way that we live our life and in the things that we say and in the words that we use. And so I've often said that we as children of God will know we are growing in the Lord when we can look back at our life and recognize that we have acted differently than we do today. So we, we recognize there's this chronological age to our spiritual life, but there needs to be a behavioral growth as well. And so here's the way we know we've grown in the Lord. When you face 
the same situation that you used to blow it at and you react and you respond differently this time. And as a result of that, you're going, my attitudes have changed as I have grown in him. The Bible instructs us that decisions are important and that bad ones can really be devastating and demoralizing. In fact, you look at Scripture and you recognize that from the very beginning, Adam and Eve had to decide in a moment whether or not they would believe that God was lying or Satan was lying. And in that moment, they decided that it was God that was lying, and that decision that they made brought sin and death on all mankind. We recognize as you get to the 13th chapter of Genesis that Lot had a decision to make. And as he's looking over the choices, he sees that there's a decision that looks like, I want the best for me, the green plains. And so he moves his family into an influence of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the result of that decision is that he ended up losing everything that he had. 1 Kings 16 tells us that Ahab, the king, chose Jezebel. He knew he wasn't supposed to, but her spiritual influence in his life not only messed him up, but messed up a whole country. And there was a great deal of sin and wrong that was involved as a result of that choice. Samson chose with lust rather than the heart of God, and he chose Delilah. And as a result of that decision, he lost the anointing of God, he lost his power, and finally he lost his life. In 1 Kings chapter 12, Rehoboam, a king, as a young man chose to surround himself with foolish advisors and chose his best friends that were young men also, and as a result of the decisions he made based on their counsel, he divided the kingdom. You see, you are only as wise as the counsel around you. That is why I've said it is so important for us as children of God to make sure not that we don't have acquaintances and friends that may not be part of the faith, but we need our advisors, we need our counselors to be people of the word so that when they speak into our life, we know that there's something that is of value there. I heard this statement, life is hard, but it's harder when you're stupid. Life is hard but it's harder when you were stupid. Now, some people claim that John Wayne said that, and, and so I did a little research because I love his movies, and I, honestly, I can't find in any of his movies where the Duke said that, although it would be something that he would say. So in the interest of being a little more gentle with you today, let me flip that statement around and say this. Life is hard, but it's easier with God's wisdom. Life is hard, but it's easier with God's wisdom. There's aspects of our life, and over the past several weeks we've talked about knowing who God is. What is his nature? Because when we get that right, then any of the qualities that he wants to place within us that are from him will be right within us. And so we find the promise of God's word that we know how then does wisdom look in our life. And in James 1.5 it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all. But we often stop at that particular passage without understanding that a little bit farther, he gives some really good directions. And if you have your Bible, I want you to highlight this passage in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, because it says this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. How many of you know that we live in a culture where people know far more of the word of God than they actually live? 
We are great hearers. In fact, we live in a country that is saturated with people who will preach the gospel, and we hear it all the time. But somehow, between the aspect of hearing and the aspect of doing, we often fall short. And the Scripture tells us, don't deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, underline that part, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, will be blessed in what he does. Do any of you just want to be blessed in what you do? Isn't it great that the Scripture gives us an outline of how we can live that life? Now, if you will recall from the previous messages in this series, you know that there that knowledge and wisdom are not the same things. Knowledge refers to an accumulation of facts. Wisdom gives you the understanding of what those facts mean. And so you could be the smartest or the most well-educated person in the world and still be a fool. Anyone can gain knowledge. Only God can give you wisdom. Only God can give you that. So what then, after three weeks of figuring out a knowledge of God that's appropriate, developing a, a theology that is based on biblical facts and understanding that God is love and, and that His goodness exists only in Him and that the farther we move from God, the farther we move from goodness. What then does it look like for us to live with wisdom in a world that has lost its mind? In James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, it begins to speak to us about what this looks like. Said, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, I would like you to hold this passage in mind as we contrast that with last week when we were talking about the principles that the world currently is living by is these principles. They live by force, they live by greed, they live by selfishness, they live by ambition, and they live by pleasure. Those outside of Christ, those are the principles that they live by. And then, and then we are presented with the scripture that says, but those of us who want to live in the wisdom of God will live in these ways. And so I'd like to examine very quickly this morning these seven marks of God's wisdom and how they look and apply within our lives. The first one is pure. The first mark of God's wisdom is it is pure. Wisdom that comes from heaven, first of all, is pure. We know that because everything that flows from God is pure. How many of you have ever used a power washer on a deck? Any of you? I did this the, a, a few years ago for the very first time, and I was amazed at how just adding pressure to water can take the stains of an old deck and begin to make it look different. And, and it literally was blowing this accumulation of stuff that had been there right off, and the difference in the way that it looked before and after was incredible. I really believe... That because of the world in which we live in, we are gathering and accumulating dust and mold and the mildew of the world that begins to weigh us down. And there must come a place within our spiritual life where we step to God and say, I need you to power wash me in your purity. 
I need you to put the force of the pressure and begin to blow off of me and out of me the very things that have become to accumulate on me that I have grown accustomed to, and it literally has changed the nature of the way that I live. So, Lord, wash away all of the areas of bitterness and frustration and doubt and despair that have clung to me, that have produced this discoloration of what should normally be a purity that I have because of my relationship with you. And sometimes we begin to recognize this because we start sentences a lot with things like this. I wish I were. And then we begin to add things. Some of it becomes as, I wish I were like them. I wish I had this gift. I wish that I had this provision. I wish that I had this. And without even knowing it, with the areas of beginning to wish that we had something different or wish that we looked different, we begin to step into an area where we live a life of jealousy and envy of those that may be around us. I was thinking the other day, out of all of the people that I've met with through 39 years of ministry, I've had very few people admit that they were envious or jealous of someone else. In fact, most people will confess to just about any other sin except that of being jealous and envious because we recognize that it makes us look small. It makes us look unthankful. And some sins are harder to deal with than others. And, and this envy, this nature of envy leads to bitterness. And it, it hardens into a malice and that becomes a jaundice to our soul. And so we need to step up and say, Lord, you need to apply the purity of your love and begin to pressure wash me so that that purity that is there can be revealed again in me because my attitudes can't change until we start with, Lord, I need your purity. And James lists that first because he recognizes that there is nothing else that we can add to this unless we start with a pure heart. Wisdom will not grow in our life unless this is the first step. That's why it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God in Matthew 5, 8. When your heart is pure, you will see God. And when your heart is cluttered with wrong attitudes and evil notions, you will see everything but God. And so purity... Is the first step but here's what you need to know purity your hunger for purity will put you out of step with the world because our world is not seeking purity Amen. our world is seeking everything but purity and so if you are living life needing to have the world's approval you are already out of step with God and the door to wisdom will be closed to you so we first ask the question how much do we want to be pure? The second thing that is listed here is that wisdom that comes from heaven is peace-loving. How many of you know people that don't want to get along? Don't raise your hands, just smile. There's way too many smiles. There's some people that they would just rather fight than talk, and they yell when they should listen, and they never give an inch because they think they're always right, and they aren't concerned about finding middle ground because it's my way or the highway. They are peace breakers, not peacemakers. But in the Greek, this terminology, this peace-loving, is really translated as peaceable. It speaks specifically to having a peace in the time of conflict. And so when God is saying one of the marks of wisdom that we live out in our life is that when the temperature gets the highest, we who claim to be of Christ will stay the calmest. That we are not engaging in the things that would light the fuse of everybody else. 
So this sort of wisdom, which is so desperately needed in our world, means that regardless of what is going on around me, you will not draw me in. You will not light my fuse. In the middle of all of this, I'm going to have a peacefulness because I love peace that God will allow in my own heart. A peace-loving person that's demonstrating living and wisdom brings a peace with them wherever they go. When they enter into a room, there comes peace with them. It's the opposite of a human tornado that wreaks havoc in every situation. But because he's at peace with God, he is at peace with himself, and he brings an atmosphere of peace with them. Oh, how the world needs us to stand up and live in the wisdom and bring peace in the middle of everything that's going on. Proverbs 14.30 says that a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. In a world that is thriving on violence and bitterness and provocation and hatred and animosity, we are living in a society where people's bones are literally rotting from the lack of purity and the lack of peace, and they thrive on it. And in the middle of that, God says, you want to know what wisdom looks like lived out in our world? Wherever you go, you bring peace. The third mark of wisdom is it is gentle. Wisdom that comes from heaven is considerate. Now, I have to admit to you that this this particular quality is hard to capture in only one English word because it's much broader than that. So let me give you some of the meanings that is encapsulated within this word considerate. It means gentle. It means non-combative. It means not quarrelsome. And this one, this one's a tough one. Not easily annoyed. For all of you eye rollers out there, and you know who you are, not easily annoyed. You discover this aspect of wisdom when you are under the gun, when the tempers are short, when you're worn out. How many of you know that the enemy knows when you're tired? The enemy knows when, when your natural inclination of patience is wearing thin. That when you get to a place where normally you would take a moment and you would be reflective and you would respond, instead the enemy throws something at you because he wants you to react rather than respond. And in the middle of all of this, you are being watched and we are being watched as children of God because people desperately want to know that everything that we say that Christ is is not accurate. And so it's in the middle of this that he says, my people living in wisdom will live with a gentle spirit, non-combative, not quarrelsome, not easily annoyed, even when you are in the middle of a pool full of piranhas. So the question is, how does this look? Well, how do you respond under pressure? If you have to shout, you lose. If you have to threaten, you lose. Someone said it this way, if you lose your cool, you can't win. If you keep your cool, you can't lose. Matthew Arnold called this quality, and I really love this terminology, sweet reasonableness. Sweet reasonableness. We need it when dealing with difficult people. 
We desperately need this aspect of wisdom to be alive and well when people are trying to bait you into a reaction. How many of you know there are people out there that do that? They literally want to bait you so they can sit back and watch it when you lose it. And the Spirit of the Lord says, if you want to walk in wisdom, if you want to demonstrate it, there needs to be the sweet reasonableness. And by the way, it drives them nuts when they can't bait you into a fight. Because you're walking in waters that they don't know anything about. We need this when dealing with difficult people. We need it when dealing with Christians who sin. And let me just say this. We as the church, through the years, have not been very good at, at restoring those from our own midst who have sinned. At times we've been very judgmental and, and cannot believe it. And sometimes push them out and, and, and hold them at arm's length. And we need a sweet reasonableness when dealing with restoring those who have fallen so that they can come back and then we desperately need it when we're dealing with rebellious children. Sweet reasonableness. If you believe in Jesus, you can be gentle because he's been gentle with you. Aren't you glad that he doesn't give you what you deserve? Psalm 103 says in verse 10, He does not punish us for our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. Because if we got what we deserved, we'd all end up in hell. Because we receive mercy, we can show mercy. Remember what Jesus has done for you, and then he says sweet reasonableness allows you to walk in wisdom and do that for others. It's a mark of wisdom that is observable. The fourth mark of wisdom is it is persuadable. Wisdom that comes from heaven is submissive. This is an interesting term, submissive, and it's not one of our favorites in America. We don't like the term submissive. The quality might be easier to see if we flip it around because earthly wisdom is arrogant and it is stubborn and it refuses to listen. It has no desire to hear somebody else's opinion. And a person who is walking in that kind of a worldly wisdom dominates every discussion, uses sarcasm to put others down, demands to be the center of attention in every room they enter. Their ego is so fragile that anyone who attacks them will activate their temper. They are the master of the put-down and the clever one-liners. And the Lord says to us, if you want to act in wisdom, you will be submissive or persuadable. God says, my wisdom doesn't look anything like that of the world. In fact, the Greek word here means easy to persuade, but it doesn't mean that we change our minds as much as it means that we are eager to listen. That probably is the most easy way for us to understand it. A person with this quality listens carefully so that they can understand the point of view of those that they are listening to. I do need to say that in this, we need to be very careful that we don't mistake this for being a pushover or we don't mistake this quality for being somebody with no conviction. It's exactly the opposite. In fact, Walking in wisdom means that you are so convicted and you live in such conviction and know where you stand that you are not threatened when you hear somebody that disagrees with you. 
that you are able to be in a conversation and listen to something that you might not agree with at all, but do so gently, hearing them out, that you might earn the ability to influence them with your words. We are often so quick to speak that we often fail to listen. And so this mark of wisdom in our life is that we are persuadable. We, we listen well. There's a submissiveness that we don't have to grab a hold and lead every congregation, but that we can hear the hearts of those who want to speak to us in ways that we may not agree with. And so we look at this and say, how do I know I'm doing this? Can you disagree agreeably? Can you discuss your deep convictions without losing your temper? Can you listen kindly to somebody who holds a different opinion than you do? My friends, we desperately need a revival of kindness in America. Desperately need it. And it begins with us living out the mark of wisdom of being persuadable, listening, being submissive. The fifth mark that is listed for us in Scripture is that it is merciful. Wisdom that comes from heaven is full of mercy and good fruit. And I love the way that these things are combined here, and I'll tell you why. The difference of being just merciful and being merciful with good fruit is that mercy drives us to an action. You see, mercy sees the need and then meets that need. That's why he adds it's full of good fruit. Sympathy is good, but only if it moves you to action. So here we're recognizing that he said, if you want to have the mark of wisdom in your life, that you will not only feel bad for what's going on around you, but you'll do something about it. You'll step into the situation. You'll bring good fruit to that. And so we live in an unmerciful world where vengeance is the watchword. If somebody hits you, you hit them back twice as hard. If somebody hurts your family, you make sure to teach them a lesson. If the life we're living today and our world around us was a movie, it would bring, you bring a knife, I'm bringing a gun. You send one of mine to the hospital, I'm sending one of yours to the morgue. That's the nature of the world in which we live. But God says, if you want to demonstrate wisdom, you're going to live to a higher standard. Because of God's great mercy, he sent his son to the cross for us. What if God had looked at us with sympathy and said, ooh, you're going to hell. Man, I'm really sorry about that. I'll be praying for you. Hope things work out well for you. Good luck. Pull them for you. But did nothing about it. But because he's merciful, the good fruits of his mercy extended to an action that literally brings us to a place of decision that changes our eternity. So the simple definition of this mark of wisdom would come like this. Do unto others as God has done for you. Do unto others as God has done to you. And when we think back over the last several weeks, how has God treated you? How has he blessed you? Because in doing that and recognizing that, then we step out and begin to bless others and treat others. Because he's forgiven me, I can forgive others. He's lifted me up when I was down so I can lift others up. He has overlooked my faults so there are people that I can be patient with because God has done that for me. 
In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for mercy was, was sometimes translated as lovely or as beautiful. So here's a quality that will make you beautiful to others. You want people to want to be around you, then you treat them with mercy because that will make you beautiful to them. And if you're beautiful to them, you will have influence in their life. So show mercy and people will think you're beautiful. Number six, wisdom comes from heaven is impartial. Now, this particular word that is translated for us as impartial, this is the only place in the New Testament where it is used. It means holding firm to the same standard at all times. Such a person would be free of prejudice and favoritism. One of the things that I've kind of enjoyed about this season is, is that baseball is back on a little bit. And I've, I've discovered as I've watched it, it really it make, it makes me laugh that they're pumping in crowd sounds and they have pictures of people on the seats in the stadium when there's really nobody there just so the players can pump themselves up. But I have discovered something. The umpire strike zone looks exactly the way it did before. There are some of them that call a strike three inches outside the zone. There's some of them that like a ball inside. But here's what I've discovered. Managers don't yell as long as the plate is the same for both teams. It's an unchanging strike zone. As long as everybody gets the same calls, they're okay with it. Applied to our spiritual life, it means that we who walk in wisdom tell the truth the first time. We don't change our story depending on our audience. We don't treat one group of people better than we treat another group of people. We are the same whether we are in public or whether we are in private. We will be impartial because it's a mark of wisdom that God has given to us. And then number seven, wisdom that comes from heaven is sincere. The final phrase could accurately be translated that we are without hypocrisy. It originally came from a theatrical term of where there would be three actors that would do a whole play and they would keep running and changing clothes and coming back out and they would play all these different parts. And, and the Lord says, the wisdom that I'm talking about indicates that you don't play parts, that you're the same person all the time. Without hypocrisy means that when people get to know us, that what they see is what they get. That we are real. We're not two-faced. That when we speak, people don't have to ask, I wonder what he really meant. And that as we add these qualities and we ask the wisdom of the Lord to be evident within our life, he wraps it up in verse 18 saying this, Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Do you ever wonder... What will be left of your life and your testimony when you're gone? You're planting seeds in your life. There's a garden that's being grown every day by your attitudes and your words and your actions. And the Lord says, if you want to have the marks of wisdom, then what will happen is when you stand before me at judgment and you are rewarded, it will be for the good seed that you planted that brought about righteousness in those around you. And if there's one thing as the worship team prepares themselves to come that I want you to understand about this, the point of this message and the point of this series has not been, boy, I just got to try harder. I'm, I'm just going to have to try harder. You can't try harder. You can, however, submit to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life more. 
Living like this demands the grace of God. And as you descend more and more into his nature, the seeds of his righteousness will sprout and grow within your life, and these marks, this fruit of wisdom, will naturally grow because you have planted yourself in his presence. And in a day and age when we are living in a world that's lost its mind, how much more do we need the church to stand up and be individuals that live with wisdom? <laughs>